The following episode of the 9pm edict is special because it's coming to you live. The following episode of the 9pm edict is also not special because it contains strong language and disturbing sexual imagery just like all the others. Wednesday the 20th... It's not Wednesday the 20th of anything. It is Thursday... The 5th of November, 2015, in a grand experiment which is bound to end in tears, this episode of this podcast is being broadcast live on the internet. Why you would actually want to do this is a great mystery to me, but that's basically what's happening here and you're going to have to put up with it. This is the 9pm Live Animal Experiments number one. President Trump. Go on. You might as well start practicing it now, right? President Trump. Say it with me now. President Trump. Picture him in your mind as I say that. It'll help you get used to the idea. And say it with me. President Trump. Well, good evening, President Trump. Yeah, see, that works, doesn't it? Just say it. Say it and you'll get used to it, right? President Trump. Trip? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine him at a NATO meeting. Well, President Trump, we we uh, understand that you wish to use nuclear weapons on the immigrants. Yeah. Oh, this is going to be so, so, so excellent. Now, before we go too much further, I wish to talk to you a little bit about, uh, look, a problem which has arisen. Uh, in the last few weeks since we did the last episode of this podcast. You will remember that um, I began last time by telling you about the fire at Sydney's Central Railway Station. And, uh, you know, that was a problem, right? Um, Look, you go back and listen to it if you want to, and uh, we can get into that. But ever since that happened, I've noticed something really weird happening when anyone is, you know, involved in something dangerous or there's a fire. You know, there's a fire in their area and other people on Twitter don't say, oh, I hope you're all right. They say, oh, is still Gary in there? Like, hello, what is going on here? I did not start that fire just because I happen to be there and a building catches fire does not mean that I was somehow responsible for it, all right? Things just catch fire to some, you know, sometimes. <sighs> What's, oh, that's that pissing me off, basically, this whole fire thing. I'm, I'm just really, really not enjoying this whole being blamed for everything. But there's one thing that I'm certainly not to blame for, and this 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 dumbfuck thing that Twitter has done, and changed the little star you used to mark a tweet and say, "Oh yeah, I'll, I'll just come back to that later." They've made it a heart, and it's a like. And if you read the blog post 
that they've used to explain this. It's, it's just so stupid. Apparently, apparently, new users were getting confused as to what the star might mean. I don't know why, because there's a billion other apps on the internet that you use to mark something and go, oh, yeah, that's something I'd like to keep track of. But apparently that was confusing. So Twitter has said, quote, the heart, in contrast, is a universal symbol that resonates across languages, cultures and time zones. <laughs> across time zones. Uh, the, heart, the heart resonates across 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I, th- they mean through times. This is how stupid the people at Twitter are. They don't know the difference between times, as in eras, as in historical periods, and time zones, which is, oh, well, God, you know what a time zone is, don't you? Because you're a grown-up adult. Twitter also says, quote, the heart is more expressive, enabling you to convey a range of emotions and easily connect with people. Yes, apparently a particular arrangement of pixels on the screen as a heart contains more range of emotions than pixels arranged in the shape of a star. I don't know why, it's just one symbol. You can't do anything with it. Well, I suppose you can... Oh, what other emotions can you convey with a heart? Despair? Anger? Oh, fucking heart, you. See, it doesn't work, does it? The whole process is flawed because Twitter imagines there's some universal semiotic standard and you will conform. Well, that's double plus good, isn't it? I mean, why the fuck does Twitter even feel the need to get involved in people's emotions? Just shunt the fucking packets, you cunts, and then fuck off out of it. And in our tests, we found that people loved it. Really? Really? How did you do these tests? Where did you find these people? What was their demographic breakdown? What was their cultural breakdown? Oh, you never publish any of that, do you? You just have some soppy PR dimwit crap on on a blog post. And how are, they, how are these things going to work? I mean... You're going to say you like something and put a little heart on it. Oh, great, I've just found a detailed report of that airliner shot down in the Middle East, 278 people smeared across the landscape. I'll mark that with a heart. I love that. No, Twitter's attitude is simply, shut up, your little content farm droids. You will express the emotions we allow and no others. Perform for everyone, you little droids. Perform, make plus good content and love. Love is being expressed as it's defined by a bunch of overpaid, emotionally retarded, Kool-Aid-addled libertarian software engineers in San Francisco. Sorry, coders. Coders, people who just assemble the nuts and bolts of the software of the emotive internet. Reread that Twitter blog post. Eventually, there'll be a link on the website. Just read that language. The heart is more expressive, enabling you to convey a range of emotions and easily connect with people. Now, imagine sitting next to that person for 15 hours on a trans-Pacific flight. You'd be wanting to fucking top yourself by the end of it, wouldn't you? So, it's stupid. I liked uh, Gonzo Hacker's tweets about this. He, he just <laughs> I don't know who Gonzo Hacker is on Twitter, but I love it. They tweeted uh, earlier today, part of the severance package at Twitter, because, you know, Twitter 
just sacked 10% of their staff recently, well, thereabouts. You know, part of the severance package at Twitter was that whatever half-assed 20% project you were nursing through quality assurance by the end of the sprint, yeah, you get that through. And if you catch Jack, catch Jack, that's Jack Dorsey, the CEO, on the way out the door when he's late for a meeting at Square, which is the company he's really interested in now, <laughs> he'll sign off on anything. Irish herself had a good suggestion too on Twitter, I thought. She wants a honk button. I like that idea. <laughs> oh, is that tweet there? <laughs> yeah, I like that. We need a honk button. Absolutely. Honk! That's ah, great. Why didn't your tiley paid Muppet children think of that, Twitter, eh? You didn't have a, a honk button. You could have gone, oh, that's just awesome. Yes, a honk button. That's what we need, people. Honk your way to victory. This podcast has been made possible by you, the listeners, uh, thanks to your subscriptions and one-off contributions. All the equipment through which I am currently channeling my wisdom into your ears, at least up until it gets to Spreaker, has been paid for by your contribution. So I would like to say thank you very, 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 very much for that. Now, we haven't got any uh, new folks in since the last time, but we do have an enormous backlog of thank yous to do as a result of the 9pm Urgent Hardware Refresh crowdfunding campaign, which paid for this particular equipment. So let's get on with the... Casual verbaling. A casual verbaling was... Uh, well, what rank was it? B-grade new uh, media freedom evangelists or something. That's right. So thank you uh, to uh, Ginevra Martin who uh, you heard on the 9pm Public House Forum, number one. Uh, she is a great supporter of media freedom, uh, and I've heard her say several times that the great thing about media freedom is that it comes in so many colours. The pastels, primary colours, and then you have these kind of, oh, what would you call it, a sort of played patterns. That's True freedom. Thank you also to Leanne O'Donnell, uh, who is a lawyer. We won't hold that against her. That's probably what keeps her down to being a B-grade evangelist for media freedom rather than going all the way to A-grade because <sighs> lawyers, right? But love your work, Leanne. Thank you to Leanne O'Donnell. And also thank you to Matthew Hall, who is definitely B-grade material because he describes himself as, quote, a paleo-eating cave monkey. I don't know how you eat a cave. I know you can eat a monkey and I know it's wrong. Fucking wrong, Matthew. Just don't eat the monkeys, all right? It's not good for you. Now, people who contributed more than the B-grade evangelists for media freedom are the A-grade evangelists for media freedom and they get a... Tongue lashings. So here's some tongue lashings for some A-grade evangelists for media freedom. Adam O'Grady. Boy, you need to really get your act together, didn't you? You used to work for that large telco. And since you've left, they've... They've really gone down the drain, haven't they? 
But what can you do? I know that you won't go back there. I know that you're fighting for media freedom in your own ways, but you really need to take on something of bigger proportions. Scale it up, as they say, and in the current environment, you need to learn to be nimble, nimble and disruptive. I can be disruptive, but I can't be nimble. So you're going to have to be nimble instead. Just Judah, thank you to you as well. Uh, I'm particularly impressed with uh, the way you approach freedom by the username part of your email address just kind of leaving out random letters and not being terribly sensible at all. One of the great things about freedom of the media is spelling. And just, this is where, you know, if you have a look at something like Tumblr, Tumblr has done more for media freedom than the Arab Spring, and you know why? Only one vowel. Arab, two vowels. Spring, two vowels. Uh, But Tumblr, just the one. And no E. If you don't have E, you get media freedom. It's it's just known. Jeremy Gregson, thank you to you also. Jeremy says, quote, I'm afraid to talk about my love of media freedom because I know the Australian Signals Directorate is spying on my every move. This message sent from an unapproved broadband connection to somewhere deep inside an unnamed defence building. Thank you, Jeremy. I completely understand. I was uh, speaking to someone from the Australian Signals Directorate only the other day in a conversation that will appear in the next episode of the Corrupted Nerds podcast, and I'll tell you about that a bit later. We know where you are, Jeremy. We know where you are. Thank you to Jeremy Gregson. Also, thank you to Rowan Pierce, A-grade media freedom evangelism here because he's a journalist. (laughs) So he fucking thinks. And the thing about journalists is they just completely make it up, right? They can fabricate the entire thing. Right. That's good work there. We will... uh, We will make sure that your freedom of fabrication, your liberation from such tedious things as facts and truth is brought to the attention of the appropriate authorities. And finally... It's a tongue lashing for Ben Ben O'Rice who says, you know who I am, well, I know who you fucking will are, Ben O'Rice. Oh, boy, do I know who you are. It's really hard to explain what Ben O does. If you have a look on Twitter at his avatar, you'll see it's some sort of large bear-like creature with little, little, little camp, little red fez as a hat. And you would think that he's a kind of jolly, fun character. Well, boys and girls, he is not. Do you see the kind of stuff he tweets? He tweeted me the other day a picture of people, kind of these in these full-body lycra gimp suits sitting at their computers, and he says, that's Stilgarian's ideal startup. 
This man stays awake at night dreaming up ways to disturb my morning coffee with images filled with these layers of filth and perversion that just squeeze their way out of his sexual fantasies across the Pacific Ocean to where I am trying to be safe in Australia. Lycra, to him, is clearly just some sort of surface protective layer across his body covering up these crevices of puffs-filled perversion that that course across his body is like track marks on a three-decade veteran junkie. It's a Mississippi Delta of track marks, a Louisiana of track... Louise, that's what I'm calling you from now on, Ben O'Rice. Fucking Louise, because Louise of the tracks, that's what we should call you, mate. This is the kind of respect I get from people who I would like to think of as my friends, but no, they send me photographs like that first thing in the morning. And you wonder why buildings just happen to catch fire. Time for a bit of housekeeping, I think. How's this podcast going? I'm going to have a look back at the Twitter stream now. Frank Sting says, Stilgarian.com is failing to load. I don't know what you expect me to do about it now. It was working just fine some minutes ago. Uh, Use the Spreaker app, mate. Use the Spreaker app. What are my thoughts on student politics, asks Outrage as a service. I try not to think about student politics. I mean, they don't, do they? They just kind of wind up little soft cock fucking toys. I mean, look at the kind of thing they turn out, right? Joe Hockey just kind of goes into a big salt. Sulk is the word. Sulk. What's salt? Joe Hockey would salt. Can you imagine? Sprinkle salt on Joe Hockey and see whether he catches fire. It's not really safe for me to think about Joe Hockey uh, catching fire, is it? No. No. What else could we do with Joe Hockey, I wonder? While you're pondering that thought, I would uh, just like to uh, mention that you can send audio comments to this program. Not right this moment because it's on. Um, And when we kind of settle into the next one, as you may have seen from the uh, screenshots posted earlier, um, I can set up Skype integration with this. So um, we can actually do a live phone-in show, talkback show, uh, which could be fun. I haven't set that up tonight because I just want to check the performance levels on a few things here. And also because I want to set up a, a radio station style delay. And I this morning under the shower, I figured out how to do that. Uh, it took a lot of soap. Um, but I did work out how to build one of those kind of seven second, 10 second delay things uh, out of the software that I use. So that will be happening in the next one. But for the moment, you can, in fact, send in audio comments by emailing them to me. I have two for this episode here's the first remember remember the 5th of november 
the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot, except maybe for the edict. Troll lol 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 lol. Carry on. Nothing to see here. Uh, thank you very much uh, to that anonymous commenter. It is the 5th of November, isn't it? In this nanny state age, we, we are not allowed to have explosives, are we? I mean, sorry, uh, firecrackers, I meant. Firecrackers, we're not allowed to have. A second comment came in from Sam, and this one's um, quite a bit more serious. Have a listen. Hey, Stilgarian. I noticed that you ask for comments a lot and have at some point in history, and I can't remember exactly where, asked for or commented on, yeah, again, memory's not great, about the opportunity for people who weren't white men to comment on the 9pm edict. And for quite some time I've been thinking about whether I should comment, contribute or, in general, make an effort. And then I realised that there was a really key reason why I wasn't, which was that, as a woman, putting my head over the parapet and offering a comment that then goes out into the public domain really puts me on the radar. It puts me in a position where people might feel that it's an appropriate opportunity to comment on my comment. And typically, as a woman, those comments are frequently unkind. I like my anonymity. I like the fact that I don't have a strong online presence that attracts the kind of issues that so many women have online. And as a result, I've really put off recording this comment. Not sure what else I want to say at this point, but I thought it was an observation worth sharing. Thanks, Sam. It certainly is an observation worth sharing. And it's something that I like to explore from time to time in other contexts, not this podcast necessarily. Uh, I did so... In the Patch Monday podcast I do, or used to do for ZDNet a few years back, and it's obviously something that's in the news a lot lately, what with that Gringlegrock kind of phenomenon and uh, various people with three-letter acronyms for their names uh, proving once more to just be completely out of touch, uh, sexist assholes. Probably they're just generally arseholes and the sexism is just like a component of that complete inability to understand how the world works. Sam does raise an interesting point. Um, I made sure when uh, I did the 9pm Public House Forum that of our panel of four people, we had an even balance of genders. It's something that the new Prime Minister of Canada... Uh, spoken about uh, young Mr Trudeau as opposed to the old Mr Trudeau. I can't even remember their names anymore. Just the Trudeau dynasty in Canada. Uh, His uh, appointed a cabinet of uh, 30 people, 15 men, 15 15 women, and asked why he did that uh, by a reporter. His answer was simply, uh, because it's 2015. You know, he's got a point. Um, at the recent ASA conference, AISA, the Australian Information Security Association, uh, the woman who's from the Department of Prime, uh, Prime Minister and Cabinet who coordinates the nation's cyber defence policies, uh, issues you know from the Prime Minister 
the Prime Minister's department out to other departments is a woman. And she spent uh, part of her uh, opening address uh, at the ASA conference talking about, hey, you know, we've got a skill shortage in the information security area. Um, if we don't actively consider women, then we're cutting our numbers by half, right? Which is kind of, if nothing else, strategically silly. And it struck me that women in senior positions seem to have to spend a significant amount of their time being women with the capital letters there and saying things like that, which should be fundamentally obvious, shouldn't they? I mean, I came to adulthood and early you know, working, or not adulthood, 70s, I suppose, 80s, early 80s. There was stuff that happened in the 70s where, you know, there were active campaigns to teach us proles about multiculturalism and about, you know, diversity, tolerance, all that kind of stuff. And it was something that was just part of society. That's faded away. When I was uh, station manager of 3D Radio in Adelaide, I had a wonderful guy who was uh, a mentor to me, used to work in management training, was retired. Every second Monday he'd come in and we'd spend a couple of hours together and talk about what I was doing with my job and so on. He made the point that the way you create a corporate culture and in a way you create a national culture, I suppose – is you just keep telling people what it is and illustrating it by example, by doing it. You just do it and you tell people that's the culture and like humans being good little social critters, they eventually figure out for themselves how they're meant to be behaving. Why does all this keep coming back in my head to Crusader Rabbit? Because he was such a a boon to tolerance and diversity, wasn't he? <laughs> Thanks for your comments, Sam. That's what it triggered. <coughs> Elephant stamp time. Elephant stamp time. Each episode of this podcast, I give elephant stamps of approval to people who have proved exceptional in the category of thinking. And I've got one from Australia today and one from not Australia. The one from Australia, it's very, very simple. You may have even uh, seen this story in the press. The woman who lost her $900 uh, winning bet in the Melbourne Cup because when her horse won... She went, post a photo, a selfie on the internet of her holding up the winning ticket (laughs) and it had a barcode on it, didn't it? So someone just took that photo, printed it, got the barcode, took it down to their local TAB, went, scan, yeah, can I have my winnings? Thank you, and went away with the $900. Don't post photographs of your betting slips, your credit cards, your driver's licences, anything like that. Idiots. Um, Though the person who stole that money in that case uh, probably will be caught because the thing about anywhere that has a TAB machine is they got cameras, right? So, oh dear, that wasn't 
wasn't so good. The other one, and I think this is particularly special. Where is it? I'll get it on my screen. This is the guy who had a whole bunch of court fines. Here is his name. Oh, I've got his name. Zachary J. Landis, age 27, of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. He advertised on Craigslist for a hacker who could break into the court's computer system and wipe out his fines. (laughs) So, yeah. For his next trick, he'll probably put up a poster asking for a hitman. Please phone me on this number. So, elephant stamp of approval to Zachary J. Landis of Lancaster Council uh, County, Pennsylvania. Well done, sir. You are worthy, truly worthy of an elephant stamp of approval. One of three words, number six. This is the last one of one and three words. One of the other things that happened during the 9pm urgent hardware refresh is that the foot soldiers for media freedom um, could choose a word and I would, uh, I would choose three of those words randomly and uh, then improvise upon that subject for 60 seconds. So I have with me, I'll tap that, that is the soup bowl of down-to-earth honesty and it has in it three, <laughs> the remaining, th- oh, this is this is not very random because I know what they are, don't I? Because they're the three that haven't been done so far. <laughs> this whole thing's a crock anyway. Um, okay, let's just pretend that I'm drawing them out. Okay, and here, shuffle them around. The first one is... Pastafarian, suggested by Michael Chesterton, like the religion. And the second one... Salubrious, suggested by Peter Hollow. It means healthy, pleasant, not run down. And the third random word is... Cyber, suggested by Susan Rankin. (laughs) Of course it's cyber. Okay, so our three words are... Pastafarian, salubrious, and cyber. Okay, I need to get the oh, the timer up. Uh, this is the bit that I didn't organise. Uh, timer, dial in 60 seconds and go. It was a salubrious restaurant next door to a church, which was handy because it was the church of the Pastafarians and the restaurant was a pasta restaurant. They kind of combined their efforts on the weekends to become a an all-in, all-you-can-eat, all-you-can-pray Pastafariama. I, I wanted to kind of ram, do the ram, pastafar, Pastafarama. Doesn't work so well. But boy, did they have some great times. They'd sit down, get a bit of Sangiovese in them, 
because you know you want to do that properly. But the real breakthrough came when they got the whole thing connecting up with other churches and other pasta restaurants across the world in a whole cyber get-together. That was pretty crap, wasn't it? Still, you get what you pay for. You're listening to the 9pm Edict, and now it's time for Nicholas Fryer with The Arch Window. Every night I read to my two sons, but there is a small problem. If I try to read something suitable for the five-year-old, the ten-year-old won't hold still. If I suggest that one parent reads to each, Master Five kicks off because he wants to do what his big brother does. So, almost invariably, I read something suitable for Senior Junior, and somewhere in the second chapter of the evening, his younger brother falls asleep. To Junior Junior, therefore, literature is a series of disjointed episodes in a story that barely makes sense, and you never find out how it ends. Just like life. If the purpose of literature is to hold a mirror up to the world... We're winning here. Musing on that lately, I've been thinking about the other life lessons that I've taught my kids, or they've taught me, in the ten years since I was first given responsibility for keeping another human being alive. Some of them are as follows. Number one. Nobody minds you pissing in public if you're small and cute enough. Respectably dressed elderly people will coo and say things like, the little fellow couldn't wait, eh? in situations in which, if it were me, the police would quickly be involved. 2. There is an art to telling a dick joke for maximum impact. When a senior citizen smiles on a urinating boy, him saying, I'm doing a wee-wee, isn't funny. Him saying, some of my wee-wees on your shoes, is marginally funnier. But if a passing pensioner indulgently refers to the little fellow, and without breaking stream he says... Your granddaughter thought it was big enough. It's fucking hilarious. Especially if he then meets their horrified gaze, staring straight back at them deadpan and raising his eyebrows as if to sympathise with their confusion at finding themselves in a world suddenly more complex than anybody wanted. And then it's time to leave before the police get involved. Number three. Having so much fun that you eventually vomit is pretty much the same whether the substance of abuse is alcohol or strawberry ice cream. Number four. The weird turned pro at a shockingly young age. Strap in now because this one's a bit of a shaggy dog story. Or shaggy cat, anyway. Our collection of cats recently went from one, very large one, to one noticeably smaller one, plus six very tiny ones indeed. When we looked in on the new family, four of the new ones were suckling lustily. But for the other two... It appeared that the whole gestation and birth process had inculcated an essentially nihilistic attitude to the mysteries of existence, and they were set on exploring that perceptual and emotional modality by way of a performance art piece that centred principally on being dead. This was, I confess, no great disappointment to me, as I knew we would soon be faced with demands from the kids to keep one or more of the newcomers, and the stillbirths reduced by two the number of animals that I'd be scrabbling to find homes for, before another member of the management team buckled under that pressure. In any event, an education into the realities of birth, life and death was the whole point in allowing the cat 
to have a litter of adorable little killing machines in the first place. The night of the birth coincided with a sleepover for Senior Junior at a mate's place, so discovering that the happiest event had taken place, the boy's mother rang to tell him the news. When she got off the phone she advised me, quite matter-of-factly, that he wanted to keep one of the dead ones. Where? I asked, looking about for a tea towel to wipe the coffee off the wall. In the freezer? Yes, she said, in a block of ice. And because I pride myself on my unflappable composure, it was with an air of mild equanimity that I wondered aloud whether his ghoulish insanity included wanting to stick a popstick up its ass and taking it to school for morning tea. His mother suggested helpfully that I get the finer details direct from him. And so I did. A couple of days later, I took advantage of a quiet moment to reach out to my firstborn and to ask him in a spirit of nurturing just what the living fuck his twisted little brain was on to come up with anything so cock-shrivelingly creepy. With an air of dead-eyed calm that would have unnerved Joseph Mengele, he explained that he wanted to keep the corpse frozen for a while, next to my leftover bolognese, so that he could show it to all of his friends. But eventually, he looked forward to thawing it out, to watch it decompose, in his bedroom. Unless, he added conversationally, looking at nothing in particular, we were allowed to keep at least one of the live ones. And I looked at the manipulative little bugger and thought, my work here is done. By virtue of just getting in first and ignoring everyone else, I got to name all four kittens. The only constraint came from the boy's mum, who looked up from whichever of her various Apple devices she had her nose in at the time, long enough to indicate that she didn't want any of them to be named after anything to do with computers which command I solemnly promised to obey. So I can tell you that if we do end up keeping one, I hope it's the feisty, bouncy one I've called Kit Kat. That still means we'll need new families for three others, though, so do get in touch if you're interested in giving a home to Jellybean, Lollipop, or the gorgeous little chap with a brown nose and tail, but pure white everything else, who glories in the name of Ice Cream Sandwich. You can, of course, uh, re-listen to all of uh, Nicholas Fryer's contributions to the Arch Window over at nickfryer.net. I dare say he'll be back in the next episode. This live episode of The Edict is part of my master plan. Burning Down Central Station was not part of my master plan. I do need to stress at this juncture because I noticed that some of you on the Twitters following along with the hashtag hash 9pm live seem to think that something I said indicates that I was responsible for that fire but I do need to remind you that I was not. I wasn't, you know. But when uh, I ran the 9pm Urgent Hardware Refresh and got all this gear, I did have a, st- a series of stages um, to, to ramp up to more complex productions. The Public House Forum, where we had a group of people around a table chatting about issues, was part of it. This live broadcast is the next part of it. The next stage will be to integrate TalkBack. 
maybe with the forum. The next stage will be to combine, well, all of those things live and on the road, and that could be a fun thing to do. So there's that. There's the other stuff I do, like the uh, podcast Corrupted Nerds, uh, and that's back. So go to CorruptedNerds.com sometime. Uh, you'll find a panel discussion-y kind of podcast there. And I am currently talking to a few different people and organisations about how I might broadcast from their events. Plus, if you are listening to this live on Spreaker, you may have noticed on their website that they've got apps uh, for pretty much every device that allow you to broadcast from pretty much anywhere. I can do all sorts of things, and I will be experimenting particularly over summer. That's very hard to say. Need more sleep. Particularly over summer um, to see what I can do with the technology. So each episode of the edict, I'll be incorporating a new element. There will be a sense of danger to the whole thing. To give you a bit more of an idea of what I've been thinking, I've got a couple of other grabs from other podcasts that have come up recently. Now, the first of these is from a, a, a wonderful, a wonderful pod, a, a wonderful podcast. I can't do puts today. Can you tell Hello. Yeah, I hear something kind of cutting a rocket. Uh 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 uh. Can you see anything? Ah. No. A podcast I've been listening to quite a lot lately is Humans of Twitter uh, by Steve Malk. Uh, and the podcast is gloriously simple. He just gets. A person who has a significant profile on Twitter, not necessarily in numbers, but in terms of what they do, and talks to them about them, explores their mind and their life for half an hour, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. It's kind of a fun podcast. I'm really enjoying it. It's called Humans of Twitter. You can find it on iTunes and on the internet generally. But the other day, he spoke to uh, broadcaster Trevor Long and Kind of that was, you know, interesting because Trevor Long is you know, both a tech writer and a, he's been a media producer, radio producer for ages. He's got some interesting stories to tell. He's a family man. He balances complex work slash work slash life issues. Uh, and so that's interesting in its, in its own right. But there's a couple of things he said about the immediacy of some of the new media that really resonated for me. And I, I want you to have a listen to this clip where he's talking about Periscope. I love Periscope. I think Periscope is fun. Yes. Is there some specific Periscoping moment that you would consider as defining for you or is that still to come? Um, Apple Watch. I remember, you know, you've, we've all watched these stupid unboxing videos on YouTube for years, you know, kids, yes. let alone adults, let alone companies themselves now filming unboxing. But, you know, Apple Watch came out and Australia's always ahead of the time because of the time zone. So, I mean, I had an Apple Watch 12 hours before America, America was even going to see it. So I just sat here and I just, you know, put the, put the phone on a tripod and sat there looking at it. And oh, there was like... Th- 
you know, 300 people watching live and over the course of the hour, probably 3,000, I think it was. It was just, it made me realize that you can have this direct, I mean, it's weird because I have it on radio. People can ring, you can ring me on the radio every weekend, no problems at all. But still people think it's amazing that I reply to a tweet. It's like, hang on, that's what I do. Hmm. Um, so, you know, seeing the, seeing the messages pop up on Periscope, show me the back or show me the side or which one's that. And it's just really cool because it's an interactive, you know, unboxing in that sense. So, you know, actually getting to show, because this is the problem with, with being so immersed in technology. I, I honestly lose sight of the fact sometimes that there are things in my office here that people would love to just get a get to play with. So mm. every now and then I've got to remind myself that there's some cool stuff here and why don't I share it with more people? So that's that's the cool thing about Periscope. It's just another outlet for us um, because there's a heap of people who don't listen on the radio. So let's let's give them something more. That's Trevor Young. Uh, Trevor Young. Trevor Long uh, talking on Humans of Twitter the other day. That comment he made about talkback radio really resonated with me because I used to produce talkback for the ABC, for ABC Radio in Adelaide, what's now 891 Adelaide. I worked out once that over the seven years I was there, I produced more than 4,000 hours of talk and talkback radio. It soon adds up, three hours a day, five days a week, 40-whatever weeks a year. Um, And... The interactivity, the kind of live stuff is something that I really want to do. And the way Trevor described then, the the idea of um, just unboxing videos as a thing, but yeah, you, you make it part of your performance. Now, the second clip that I wanted to play, and hmm, I'm... I just realised as I'm saying all this, I'm I'm letting you kind of behind the curtain a bit here, aren't I? Um, this is not really quite, this shouldn't be in the edict. This is, should be a sort of side podcast or something. But a few months ago now, I was watching some comedy panel show on SBS television and I can't remember the name of it. Annoyingly, I, I pulled out the audio clip and I just labelled it Doug Stanhope because American comedian and drunkard Doug Stanhope is the one that I want you to listen to. Um, but this was essentially essentially what this, this TV program was, was that people just, well, comedians got together after they'd been doing gigs at a comedy festival, sat down, there were four or five of them around a table, got the drinks out, had a moderator and were just drinking and talking about comedy and about their lives. And it was fascinating stuff. Certainly could have been on could not have been on broadcast TV in the United States. <laughs> this must have been a kind of cable show. But I was really intrigued by these comments from Doug Stanhope. Doug will play a bowling alley and abortion clinic. He doesn't give a shit. He's great. <laughs> He honestly is. He's good. He's the real deal. Well, you play yeah. people's homes, right? I played a backyard uh, in Vegas, and it was fucking great. I mean, with all this social networking, it, there's no need to fucking involve clubs anymore, much less fucking comedy <laughs> bookers. Yeah. yeah. We can go. Yeah. Yeah. We put it back to the hands of the people. 
just so many people make a fucking dollar off of the talent that are just could be cut out. They're middlemen. They're fucking leeches, and they they don't oh, need to exist. Up. No, they don't need to exist. You can bypass all of that. You're just too fucking lazy. Oh, come on. You're too lazy. You want a waitress to pick you up at the fucking airport so you can try to bang her. All right, Kim Jong Two. I get it. Money is evil. Yeah, money is evil, but sure, it comes in pretty goddamn handy, doesn't it? Sometimes you think so, don't you? Anyway, that was the other part of the element. One is the interactivity, and the other is cutting out the middleman. I am sitting here at a dining table in the Blue Mountains, a hundred kilometres from Sydney on the end of an internet connection that's basically copper wire unspooled through the scrubland, the internet of trees, I've got a laptop, I've got a few other bits and pieces. I have previously, uh, in, in weeks before this, put all of this equipment into one backpack and one duffel bag to carry with me, and it all just works. I can broadcast live from anywhere there's an internet connection. Now, it's obviously going to be easier to do if I have assistance, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff in the same way that a radio program is easier if you have a producer and a technical producer. You can focus a bit more, and that's why I'm kind of pausing and umming and erring here a bit um, because I'm having to kind of juggle a few things and it's been a while since I've done this I, I mean I literally kind of decided how this was all going to hook together technically uh, in its fine detail in the last three hours before going live uh, and I just threw together a running sheet and I haven't really scripted some of this but these are the kinds of things I'm interested in doing I'm certainly interested in your comments this was part of why this is labelled live animal experiments. Uh, and so before I wrap up, I'm going to have a look at your tweets here and see what you've, uh, what you've said. Um, no, I won't do that because you're gossiping amongst yourselves about Nick Fryer's appalling parenting skills, which is fair enough. I mean, he really should be called out, but it's not something that, that we can deal with in this particular juncture, is it? Anyway, that's where I'm thinking of going with this. Now, can I ramp this back up after that thoughtful thing to, uh, <laughs> to the kind of program we normally do? Let's see. <laughs> We've been going for 50 minutes anyway. So what I might do, that should be a familiar sound by now, boys and girls, as should this. This is, uh, this is something that Phil from Divine Cellars recommended. This is ridiculous. When I go in to get wine, I just say, yeah, Phil, um, I want something, uh, $15, and I'm drinking it tonight. And he looks at the weather and he looks at the shelf and he says, yeah, this uh, Brisa Carmenere from Valle Central of uh, Chile, 15 bucks. 
Vista Mar, it says at the bottom, which even my complete lack of language skills tells me means a view of the sea, or sea, well, sea view, really, isn't it? Uh, we shall see. So that, as I just described it, was the duration of the... Uh, Mm, sort of like the duration of the wine buying experience, and then he um, proceeded to uh, tell me at great length and with much emotional intensity how the changing nature of pornography is affecting the brain chemistry of young men aged between 22 and 32. And the reason why he uh, specified those ages is that people over 32 did not grow up with the internet. People under 22 have always had the internet and so they've learnt certain things. People in the age in between have grown up before there was the internet but then through these important periods when their brain was doing certain uh, growth and and, uh, ending its plasticity stages um, encountered video streaming for the first time. Uh, it was quite an interesting and complex discussion, uh, which I won't repeat to you now. This is really quite a nice wine. Oh, yeah, that's very good. But the wine is one thing. There's other things we need to do, such as... Two minutes hate for an anonymous supporter. One of three words... Number That's the thing about um, new software as well. You kind of accidentally brush the keyboard and the wrong things happen. It's terrible when the wrong things happen. Let's start that again. Two minutes hate for an anonymous supporter. Two minutes hate is what, you know, you kind of really... Shining lights of media freedom. <laughs> I'm laughing because I just saw Frank Sting tweet, I'm supposed to be dry tonight, Stilgarian. Stop fucking drinking. Fuck you, Frank Sting. Mwah. Lovely. It's beautiful, mate. Beautiful red wine. Have a, have a little more, mate. Now I'm going to let Frank sting off. I cannot work up the energy to do two minutes hate tonight because I love you all. We'll come back to that next time. Well, that's all the edict for now because I'm incompetent and it's coming up to the 54 and a half minute mark and... I think you've had enough. I think you've had a taste. I think, you know, a bit of audible, a bit of vaudeville, as they say, leave the audience wanting more. And I know you want some more wine, don't you, Frank? Actually, a whiskey. Why don't you have a whiskey, mate? I've got a whole lot of stuff coming up very soon. But the theme is going to run out very soon. So you'll have to go to the website to look for all that stuff. There will be another edict very soon. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. You have a great time.
The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry, portions of this podcast which did not affect the final outcome have been fabricated. I am not really a robot. Please trust me.